uh, I think we're going to uh, undertake a very ambitious plan. Um, I felt like uh, last time that we did eight parts on core beliefs of Judaism, part one, I guess eight parts in part one, I felt like, uh, at least from my vantage point, it was a resounding success. So I figured we'd try to tackle another huge element, a huge pillar of, of Jewish life, and kind of go through it systematically and examine all the issues, all the issues, but all the basics, all the fundamentals, and kind of get deeper and deeper, more granular, into a subject that we kind of all know a lot about, or at least we think we know a lot about, but it's maybe kind of disjointed. It's not uh, you know, clear, it's not organized, it's not focused. We don't know how the, all the themes kind of work together uh, and the like. So, and that is, of course, Torah. We say, Torah, what do you mean we know what Torah is? We read the Torah in school, we read the Torah in the shul, we study Torah every day, we have the books of the Torah in front of us. Uh, what's there to know? And, of course, I would agree that most of us and most Jews, I would think, worldwide do have somewhat of an understanding as to what Torah is all about. Uh, and that's why I think it is ambitious to try to really examine it in a granular fashion to go back to the basis and say, what is Torah really about? What is Torah? If you tried to give me a definition to that question, it may be a little bit harder than, than you would imagine. You know, say, if you ask people, what's Torah? They say, I don't know, it's an ancient book. Uh, but that's not what we say, right? We don't say it's an ancient book. No. We say it's a mindset. It's an attitude. It, it's 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 a li- it's life. It's right. it's purpose. It's everything. So how do we define it? You know, it's something we know a lot about, yet we can't really define it very easily. So I thought to break down the subject into a few a few different points that we could maybe address one at a time, uh, and maybe start with. We'll just kind of go through a little bit of the uh, uh, of the outline of the big picture, and then kind of go uh, into the more uh, specific yeah. elements. So I was thinking to talk about maybe in the, in this order. First of all, what's the purpose of the Torah? Why why we have Torah? Uh, like what what's the point? You know, we're studying ancient documents. Why? It's our manual for life. Uh, manual for life. Okay. Uh, actually, what I have discovered, uh, I have discovered twenty three different reasons why we study Torah. Which is obviously a lot more than yes, the manual, of course. You know, these are catchphrases, but to go through and kind of go through the sources and what does Torah do to a person? How does Torah transform a person? Why is Torah so central in our perspective of Tikkun Olam that we've spoken about in the past? How uh, Torah really is all we've got in life. It's what defines us as a nation. It's what enables us as a nation to do. That that we can, but really we must do. It's the only thing that saves the world from absolute doom. If we didn't have Torah, we wouldn't have anything. The verse says. Uh, the verse says uh, it's brought down in the Talmud in in, in Shabbos uh, that if if we don't have Torah, the Almighty wouldn't create the world. Think about that. Everything, all the people running around trying to make a living, all the people who are sick in the hospital, all the people who are at these. Uh, political rallies, all of, everyone, all of life, all the cosmos only exists because of Torah. Torah is much more than an ancient book. It's the lifeblood of the universe. Well, the very cosmos exists because God created Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But all of the, 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 the central point, the thing, the, the lever, the fulcrum of, know, of the universe is Torah. Yeah. So it's a lot more than just a very narrow definition. 
that's the first thing I was going to do. And then I, I, uh, the, the, the plan post that would be, okay, we know why we have Torah, uh, but let's examine what we have. So we have, of course, written documents like we have in front of us today. We have, of course, oral traditions that were later on written in books. And if it's oral, why was it written? And all those kind of questions. What's the Talmud? How does the Talmud work? How do we know that it's all true? Uh, what can we prove about the authorship of the Torah? Uh, how do we? Ha- is there any evidence to uh, that you know to to bolster uh, the claim that we have had that this is a book authored by God? Um, <clears throat> how the written and oral Torah work together, and kind of the fascinating intricacies of that relationship. A little bit of a guide to Jewish literature. And of course, what are the roles and limitations of rabbis? Uh, because I speak to people all the time, and they say, "Well, that's rabbinic Judaism." As opposed to, I don't know. Uh, so, I, to me, rabbinic Judaism is a catchphrase for a claim that rabbis invented Judaism or part of Judaism that we have today. And we have to actually examine the facts. What does the written Torah say? What does oral Torah say? What is the specific role? What's the idea of the making rabbinic law, for example? We have a few rabbinic mitzvahs that we do. We have many, 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 many rabbinic edicts that we uh, observe. Why would they do it? Why, why can't we just follow what the Almighty says? Why do we have to do what the rabbis say? Et cetera, et cetera. Of course, we're going to talk along the way as well about uh, how the tr- traditional Jewish perspective on higher Bible criticism, um, A, in the form of, uh, of, of, of textual questions that we have about the Torah, uh, B, in the form of kind of theological or philosophical questions in the Torah. I think we'll probably also talk a little bit about kind of some of the big picture questions that people have, like, oh, uh, if God exists and the Torah is true, how come things seem to be different than we would have imagined them to be as well? Um, so that's that's the goal. Like we said, it's a little bit ambitious, but I feel like if we bite off a little bit every week, or you know, take a, a, a narrow kind of avenue towards the big goal, eventually we get there. That's what I think we can do. Hopefully, uh, we'll be successful in it. Um, I think uh, that our success in the past gives me hope that we can do it. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Let's 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 start. Okay. So I think a good way to approach the subject is kind of first documenting the obsession that we've had with Torah. Um, If you look at ancient histories, if you look at recent histories, if you learn about the history of the Jews in the medieval times, what you find constantly that Jews are obsessed with knowledge, with education, and primarily with knowledge and education of Torah. We find in ancient testimonies from non-Jewish sources, Jews are obsessed with learning. They're always studying. Everyone's literate. They're always engaged in the pursuit of wisdom. We find histories in medieval times where uh, under threat and under persecution and under uh, crusade and inquisition, the rabbis are huddling in caves and studying. And we have times where the Jews are they're being kicked out of the land, they're being kicked out of their homes, they're being kicked out of the countries. And what do they take with them? Their books, their manuscripts. Right? We have... Uh, uh, historical accounts of rabbis in the medieval times who were, uh, you know, just instrumental in writing a tremendous corpus of wisdom that is uh, a definitive of, of, of that, representative of that era of scholarship. And they were so obsessed with writing, they wrote so voluminously that there were times when they were stuck in caves. 
and they didn't have any ink, and they pricked themselves and drew blood and used blood to write Torah with. Just an incredible dedication and obsession. The Talmud tells a great story of Rava. Rava is the name that is the most common name we'll see in all of Talmud. Great scholar. And there was once an episode where a heathen, right, someone who doesn't believe in Torah, Min or a Tzidoti, a Sadducee, sees Rava studying. And he has his hands under his body. And he's being so aggressive in his study and he's, he's, he doesn't realize that his hand is, uh, is under him and, and it, it's kind of losing its blood and it starts bleeding. And he's bleeding profusely and he doesn't, doesn't notice because he's studying. Like I tell him, are you crazy? Look at you. You guys are nuts. You see, uh, you know, you see people like studying and they're, like, and they're so involved and so enamored and so taken and so just oblivious to anything else that the guy's bleeding. He doesn't notice it. And these, well, it doesn't, well does it sound healthy? No. That's what the guy was telling him, right? And, but these are the heroes. Those are the heroes. The, the, Rav is the hero of the Talmud. And it's a hero who has an obsession. So obsessions usually aren't healthy. But apparently from the Jewish perspective, obsession with Torah is very healthy. And the question is, why? Of course, this is all, this is all a, a setup. Why are we so obsessed with Torah? You know, to give a modern example, we have, there have been several documented episodes recently of, 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 of great scholars undergoing surgery without anesthesia and not at all reacting because in their, their, their mind was totally preoccupied with Torah. And we know, we know, you're a doctor, you could uh, confirm this, that uh, if your mind is absolutely focused on one thing, you could totally not notice. You know, people could be shot. And they're engaged in, in, in the battle, and they don't notice till much later that they were shot. But if you're shot, you feel it, of course. But it feels like a sting, and they just keep on, on going, and, and you know, and then unless they have a loss of blood, they just they pass out. How is that possible? If you're engaged in something, if you're focused on something that you put all your mind toward, towards, you won't notice pain. That's so, the adrenaline story. Exactly. So the rabbi is, is studying, and he tells him, "Okay, you could do surgery." And he's in his head, he's studying, and he's thinking about Torah. And he doesn't, he doesn't feel when they're cutting him up and doing surgery, you know. And these are the heroes of Judaism, and it has been throughout history. And we know the Jews never had illiteracy, almost never had illiteracy. Um, we know that the yearning of all the Jews throughout history um, was to be a scholar. You know, today we want, the Jewish mothers want the kids to be doctors. It used to be they want them to be scholars until um, very recently. And the question is why? The question is why? Why, why so obsessed? You know, in the Talmud's times, what was the greatest insult you could possibly level upon someone? In the Talmud times. Yeah, the ancient times. The worst thing you could possibly label someone is a rake. Rake means someone who's empty. Mm. To be empty, to be an airhead, to have nothing going on upstairs, so to speak, that's the greatest insult because the thing that everyone values is knowledge. Is knowledge. And if you don't have that, you're a nothing. You're a loser. You have nothing going for you. What value do you have? And I think even today, you say, well, ancient times. What about today? You know how many people there are in Israel today whose sole occupation is Torah study? Lots. Oh, lots. Lots. Can you throw out a number? Anyone think venture a number? I don't know how many people there are. So in 1952 or 1953, uh, there was an exemption 
of military service for full-time Torah studies. So to complete Torah study years. 1952. 1951, sometime, sometime in the early 1950s. I guess 40%. Well, then it was, it was 400 than. students. Oh, I don't know. Today, there's 150,000 students whose sole occupation is Torah study. Six well, it's, uh, that's the... No, I'm asking you. Yeah, the nation's six million, but it's old people, young people, immigrants, etc. Uh, now, I, I, what I wonder... What are exactly? Just, just studying Torah. So that's right. Scholars. Half is men. Huh? Men. It's probably a lot more than half of them are men. Yeah, but the ages are different, too. Oh, you're saying the half of the society, right? But the, the scholars are almost exclusively men. Now, what does that mean? How many people are there in, in, in the United States studying biology? Or chemistry or physics? or And how many of them are doing it for three years, for four years? You know, to get your degree. Right. Yeah. But how many, how many people are there that dedicate their life to wisdom in this world? Lot, there's lots of people. I, will want, I want to make the argument. I haven't done this I empirically. in the United States, they have an ulterior purpose. Well, yeah, and, and it's also that they're, they're trying, to, trying to get their, their, their doctorate or whatever. Yeah, they're trying to but make it, money, it, and they're trying to do research. Well, I'm not, trying to, I'm not going to you know, cast well, any I'm, judgment here. My point is, is that it's possible that there are more people today engaging in scholarship in Torah than any other field out there. I think it's very possible. In this country? In the world. Oh, in the world, okay. Which is very interesting. It's possible that that there's more human capital, more human intelligence at the pursuit of Torah study more than anything else. Do you have a number? Where do you get that statement from? The 150? Well, I'm saying I say it's possible. So I haven't done I haven't done the research. I you know we you know we figure out how many how many how many graduate students are there uh, in, in mathematics in, in well, America. Well, yeah, but how many attorneys are there? Yeah, how but many attorneys are studying that's to right, be a million. That's right. I'm not, I'm, that's no, I'm just talking about knowledge. His comment. About yeah, knowledge. Right. right. So but, so there's more attorneys. But, all over but, the a, world but attorneys are not scholars. No, they're not scholars. They're not scholars. No. They're people who are engaged. In a profession that requires a certain modicum of scholarship. That's my point. My point: people whose occupation is scholarship. There are people that are legal scholars, yeah. like law professors, etc. Yeah. But I, I still think we don't have 150,000 of those in America. No way, right? We don't have 150,000. There's only about uh, four or five thousand law professors in America, right? Mm-hmm. So, well, and even if you exclude them, I mean, you have all the people who study science and study math mm-hmm. all over the world, not just in the United that's, States. That's that. That's true, but. That's the, we, I, we could argue the numbers. Well, we don't have to argue. Uh, that, no, that's right. right. We, we could. Just but but then my point is, is that even today, some of the most brilliant people in the world, mm-hmm. when they wake up in the morning, when they go to sleep at night, right, throughout the day, they're spending 10, 15 hours a day studying Torah. And I was in Israel, and that's where the, the epicenter of this world is. Mm-hmm. And the people there are absolutely brilliant. Today, just today, we had the, the funeral of one of the Rosh Yeshiva, one of the heads of the Yeshiva, of the Mir Yeshiva. Okay? This is someone, by the way, who was born in Shanghai. Mm. Uh, when the Mir Yeshiva, the biggest Yeshiva in the world, uh, in 1939, 1940, they were in Poland. But they were, thankfully, on the eastern side of Poland, so that, w- that when the war began and Russia invaded from the east, Germany invaded Poland from the west... Right, so they had this demarcation line in the middle. They were uh, thankfully on the eastern side, mm-hmm. 
And then before 1941, before the Germans attacked and invaded the Soviet Union, they managed to get all the way across the Trans-Siberian Railroad, all the way, you know, all the way to Vladivostok, across the Sea of Japan, and go to Kobe, Japan, eventually settling in Shanghai, mainland China. An entire yeshiva. This person was born in Shanghai. He became the Rosh Hashiva, the Mahavid Yeshiva. So they were Polish. They weren't Asian. Well, I mean, they weren't Oriental or whatever. No, well, they, they, they were Lithuanian, Poland, Belarusian, right. Belarusian, that kind of area of, uh, of, right. of, of Europe. Um, and well, this is a remarkable story unto its own, how an entire yeshiva intact, faculty, student body, was able to evade the Holocaust and continue to study in first Kobe, Japan, and later on in Shanghai. So I guess the point you... I, I understand what you're saying. Now, in, in Judaism, scholar study, in other religions, let's say um, Christianity... There's no study. They go out and preach. Oh yeah. So they're not. And it's there. all about it's all about reading the Bible. That's right. That's there what, is read no the Bible. Study. It's all superficial. There's no. It's study. all superficial. That's they right. don't sit around and study. They go out because there's nothing nothing to study. That's right. Right. And that's the differentiation. It's well, that's one of the differenti- differentiations. But uh, for example, so the person who who passed away this uh, last night, this person was I would arguably one of the most intelligent people that, 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 that in the world. This guy, I'm telling you, I, I I've heard him speak. Uh, he knew all of Talmud by heart. What he knew all name? of the commentaries. His name is Rabbi, Rabbi Rafal Shmuelevitz. Okay. Um, just a renowned genius and savant, like who knew everything by heart. How, but how just, old was he? He was 78. He suffered from ALS. Oh. Uh, but his, like, Terrible. if you would go, I consider myself somewhat uh, equipped no intellectually. Yeah. Yes. I would sit in his lecture and he's speaking faster than when you take the radio or take a, an audio file and turn it at 3x speed. And he's going through Talmud like this, and I, I lost him. I'm like, ah, I lost him. Wow. You know? Just unbelievable, unparalleled genius. Okay? And these people are vested their lives in Torah study. And the question is, and the point that you, that you brought up is that Torah... It, you can never study all of Torah because the more Torah you study, the more you realize. Right? You don't know much. <laughs> exactly. So the people that are the most ignorant in Torah, this is a very subtle point. Who's the most ignorant in Torah? Me. <laughs> well, no. Right? <laughs> the people that know the least think they know the most. Oh, well, that's always the way. But the people that know the most, the people that are are, are just world-class geniuses that spend all their lives studying Torah, they know how much more there is that they don't know. Mm-hmm. I'll give you guys an example of this. Which is, it's, unf- it's an unfathomable thing. This is kind of maybe a little bit of, 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 of an insight as to what Torah really is. Because Torah is God's brain. That's the simple answer, right? God's brain. God's, God's brain. mind. God's intellect. Now, as we explained with God, we cannot <gasps> fathom God because there's no limits. Right. Now, what if we peer into that brain? The more we peer, the more we realize how no limits there is. So the deeper we get, the deeper we realize that there's more there's to go. There's more to go. Right? So I give you guys an example. This is an amazing story in the Talmud. The Talmud tells of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was the greatest scholar of his time. And he had a, there was a particular law, very esoteric law about uh, the Leverite marriages 
when the, the, the brother who dies mm-hmm. has two wives. One of them is the sister of the brother who's alive. Very complex. Probably never happened, right? Very complex law. And they heard a rumor. The rabbis hear a rumor. This is from the Talmud of Ramos. The rabbis hear a rumor that there is this renegade scholar at the other end of the, of the country who, in this particular law, he rules against the against Rabbi Akiva, but against against the plurality of the scholars. So one of the, one of the rules in the Talmud is that when you have five hundred scholars, one guy says one way, and four hundred ninety nine say the other way, we follow the plural. That, that's one of the rules, right? You follow the majority. So they hear about this guy on the other end of the country who rules against the majority in this very esoteric uh, uh, law. So they go there and they talk to him. They start talking. They start studying, 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 studying. And finally they kind of meet, bring the conversation towards this law. And he tells him, oh, no, I'm with you guys, of course. The, that, that the law is that she is prohibited. You can't marry her, not her, not the, uh, not, not the co-wife. So like, wait a minute, but we heard about you that you said not like that. He says, oh, it wasn't me, it was my brother. But be careful, he has 300 proofs that he's right. 300 proofs that he's right. The rabbi's like, oh, goodness. You know, so they, these three rabbis that went to this, like, we got to find this brother, hear what he has to say, right? So instead of going all together, they split up into three. Mm-hmm. So that way, maybe they'll find him, one of them will bump into them. So who bumps into them? Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva starts arguing with him. You said that this. You said that you say that this. Uh, that this. That this is permitted. It's prohibited. He says, "Well, we have three <coughs> proofs." So he gets proof number one, and Rabbi Akiva refutes it. And proof number two, and Rabbi Akiva refutes it. Right? Three hundred proofs, and he refutes it. So the guy says, "Ah, this is Rabbi Akiva. He's the, the reason why he's famous." He says, "Atahu Akiva ben Yosef shashim chaholach misofa olamat sofa." Are you the famous Rabbi Akiva whose name goes from one end of the world to other end of the world? You study a lot of Torah, but you did not reach the level of a, uh, of, of a shepherd of livestock. He says, oh, you, you feel like you're such a great Torah scholar? You know more than a shepherd of livestock. So where does Rabbi Kiva respond? How do you respond to that? Seemingly like an insult, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he says, no, 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 you got it wrong. I'm not even like a shepherd of small animals, of sheep. What response? Very bizarre. It seems like Rabbi Kiva, oh, he's so humble. Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm even less than what you think. What, what, what reality here is going on is like this. Rabbi Kiva, obviously, is the greatest scholar of his generation. But compared to what Torah really is, remember, Torah is limitless. Torah is limitless. The more you know, the less you know. Because compared to what Torah really is, and the more exposed you are to the vastness of Torah, Arucha me'eretz mido ruchav me'niyam, it's wider and deeper than the sea. You can't see the end, right? You only drop you in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? Where's Hawaii, right? You can't see it. And you, no matter how far you are, you're about to see it. It's, it. That's what it's like. It's, it's, it's endless. You're plopped in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, try finally finding land. That's how, you, that's how easy it is to find the end of the edge of Torah. So he, so, Rabbi Kiva, so he tells him, Rabbi Kiva, you should know that yes, you have great accomplishments in Torah, but compared to what Torah really is, you're nothing. You're a shepherd. Rekiva says to him, no, 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 I'm not a shepherd of big animals, I'm a shepherd of small animals, i.e. Torah is even greater than what you say. My knowledge in Torah is smaller, but not because I'm smaller, not because I'm more humble, rather because Torah is even bigger. So that idea, like, is, is striking, like, we have 
a nation that survived for so long, right? improbably. We have a nation of overachievers, right? No one would deny that. We're a nation of overachievers. And yet we see an obsession with Torah. And we see an attitude towards Torah that Torah is just something out of this world. And this perhaps could explain something that Maimonides writes. Maimonides uh, is of the opinion that a a person's got to work, right? Right. Very famously. And Maimonides tells us that the verse, uh, the the chapter, uh, the, the, the line in chapters of the Father says, we cannot use Torah as an axe to dig with. Torah is not ours to kind of use for our benefit. I could say, oh, I'm a Torah scholar. Give me honor, give me money, right? Give me a crown. No, that's wrong. I don't want to use Torah to kind of dig the foundation for my glory. So, so, so the Rambam tells us, Maimonides tells us, we can't use Torah for our own benefit. So we've got to work. Can't just say, oh, I'll study Torah, let people pay for me. That's what he says. So how much should you work and how much should you study? What's the breakdown? Enough work that you can make enough money to okay. eat and so, have shelter. And- that's what you would think, right? That was something like that, right? So my money actually tells us. He says, well, the average person should study nine hours a day yeah, and work for three. Yeah. Wow. That's what he says. And by the way, I saw this recently. If you Google how the average American spends his time. Yeah, like works three hours a day. The number that I saw was two hours and 59 minutes of actual work. Not like fooling around on the internet or like getting your coffee. (laughs) Which was to me was very interesting. The average American actually works for three hours. So what are we doing the rest of the time? We're watching television. We're wasting time on the phone. uh, You know, on our phone. We're having leisure, right? Well, you don't do that, right? No, I work more than that. But I think a lot. He said average. I mean, people work less and people that work more. Yeah. Which to me was very interesting. And I'm not trying to say people should, I'm saying, but what does this mean? Maimonides is telling you, I'm the one who's supposed to, who argues that we have to work. But Torah is our life. Work is not our life. Work is what we need to do to survive. Yeah. Torah is our life. That is the Jewish attitude. And even Maimonides, who's a little bit, or uh, who's in the spectrum, he's always going to argue that we have to have personal responsibility. Can't just say, oh, rely on God or rely on the right. taxpayers, or right? We have to make sure that we pay for ourselves and pay, right? Even he says you got to study Torah nine hours a day because that's your life. Torah is our life, and working. No one would argue. I mean, some people might, but people wouldn't argue. Most people wouldn't argue that working is their life. No, you need to work to live. You don't live to work. Yeah. So what are you living for? Well, some people. Most people. I said most people don't. So if you're, if you're living, if you're working to live, so what are you living for? Children. Some people say they're children. So you're saying someone who doesn't have children has no life. No, no you can't say that. But what if after you marry off your children, your kids are on your own? So what are you living for? To learn. <laughs> no, so, so a lot of people well, would say, a lot of people would say to have. What? Your life is I read all the time. Uh, people would Not say, some people would argue that, well, it's, it's, it's to have a good time. Yeah, or to enjoy spend, yourself. Enjoy yourself. It, it's it's oh, some form of, form of pleasure. That's what God says. We're here to enjoy Some ourselves. form of pleasure. That's right. What the Torah says, yeah, it's for some sort of pleasure. But, but what kind of pleasure? Spiritual. Is it just about having ice cream and kind of proverbial ice cream? 
travel's nice, mm -hmm. right? But travel pales in comparison to the experience that we can have with Torah. Nah, Rabbi, you're trying to say it, right? Of course, you know, you, it sounds like a, I'm, 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 I'm overhyping Torah. And what we're going to see when we talk about these 23 reasons, I'm not overhyping anything. But when we say, what are we living for? We're living for God, and by extension, we're living for Torah. That's what we say as Jews. Ki heim chayenu yameinu. That's as we say every night. For it is our life. This is what we do in our lives. And that's what we study day and night. So how many people in Israel do you think, other than the 150,000 that study the Torah, what are they living for? The rest of the population is not studying Torah day and night. So they must be doing other Yeah, things. so what's interesting is that uh, there's a new law now being proposed. I think it's called the Israel Basic Law, which is going to... Uh, kind of define what Israel's about as a nation. Mm -hmm. And part of it is going to be kind of uh, uh, establishing that Israeli law is uh, inspired by Torah law. Uh, it's going to change the, the official language from Arabic and Hebrew to Hebrew alone and kind of link the modern state of Israel to the Torah's view of the state of Israel. So even though there may not be uh, the majority or, you know, 40-50% of the people that dedicate their life to Torah study. Uh, there are a lot of people that don't get dedicated life to Torah study, but study Torah in the morning before they go to work, or study Torah at night after they go to work, or have a Torah study session during work, during the day, right? Or listen to Torah in the car, you know, because that, that's, yeah, they have to, they want to work or they have to work, but that doesn't mean that they're ignoring Torah. Uh, but I think even the nation at large in Israel, and I think it should be in America as well, uh, for sure from uh, from you know, from our perspective, uh, you know, people that are more engaged with Torah is that our life is about Torah, and yes, does that mean that all of us can or should be studying Torah all day? No, but it does mean that it is the guiding light behind what inspires us as a nation. It's what we try to do as much as we can, uh, and it, kinda, what do you mean by we? We as a nation, we? Jewish people, is we. Learned spiritual people, or as we con collectively, all of us, all of us. You know, unless we we understand Hebrew verbatim, right? Which you not we really can't study the Torah. That's right. It's that's not, not true. We. That's not true. I, I don't agree. That's I not agree. Don't agree. Th thankfully, uh, in the past twenty five years, there's been an explosion of content available for for those who only speak English or French or whatever Spanish, right? right? Art school made it very easy to study Talmud. Isn't there some a lot of subtleties in the letters? Well, there's a lot that you can't I, get. That I you can't really learn. That's, that's we, true. He and I can't study Talmud. Of course you could. Well, not the, in the way you true, study True, that's Talmud. true, because remember, most of the commentaries are, are spread of, out all over. Not only there. spread out over, but, but they're all in Hebrew. I mean, right. the Talmud itself was, tra was translated, but there's still a lot that's not translated. Maimonides, for example, was never translated. Uh, well, it was, but not in a really good way, not in a total way, not like a top to bottom. Um, all the commentaries, all the Rishonim, all the medieval commentaries that we talk about, that right. they add so much to the, to, to the experience of, of Talmud study that that's not in Hebrew, in Hebrew. But still, you know, I, I, I want to tell you guys, I had, a, I had a student when I was still in, in Israel, teaching in Israel. I had a student that came to Israel. He was 20 years old, maybe a year from school or whatever. And I sat down, I'm talking to him, and he tells me he doesn't read Hebrew. This is clearly an intelligent guy. He's motivated. He's ambitious. He wants to learn. 
So I say, okay, well, let's, let's, let's change that. So I, I took this paper, I cut out 22 pieces of paper, and we made flashcards. Mm-hmm. And the next day, we tested them. He knew all the letters of the Hebrew. And two months later, he finished a, a tractate in Talmud. A book of Talmud. So what, like, I, I, what I did, it's a great story. Well, you've got to have a little bit of here in order. Well, he had a lot up there. Yeah, Thankfully, he still does. Um, when I was in Israel a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I popped in to visit him. Him and his wife now and daughter and kind of, yeah. he, he, but he built, he built it himself. I'm saying we helped him along the way. But he built, and he's now a tremendous Torah scholar. Mm. Now, so does that mean that you are doomed to a life of ignorance because you don't have any Torah? No. Uh, it's a question about motivation, but also not only that, even if you're not as motivated as this guy, who was one of a million, but you could still do as much as you can with everything we have available in English. You know, I have, I have, a, I have a study partner here in Houston. I don't, I don't believe any of you guys know who he is. Uh, and he doesn't read Hebrew yet, but he's, he studies three, four hours of Torah a day. A day. Now, he's wow. a very accomplished professional. He doesn't read Hebrew? He doesn't read Hebrew. So he, Hebrew he reads English. Church, just in English. So he gets all the books in English, and, and I recommend books, and he buys them, and he reads them. He actually reads them. And he, did, he does three, four hours of Torah study a day. Do you have any more room? Huh? Do you have any more room? What do you mean? Hebrew. Of course I have room. Well, I study Hebrew. I would like to learn. Well, there you go. Well, we'll, we'll talk. Uh, we'll make a date afterwards. Okay. Um, but, you know, this... It, so, yes, there are limitations. It's much harder, especially later on in life. You know, but I, I tell what happened with this guy in Israel. Like, to me, like this is my pride and joy. We, I started starting with him. You know, first we taught him how to read and whatever. I remember I was sat, I was with him, sitting him, have his little daughter on my lap. You know, like this is kind of like nachas for me, right? Yeah. So I'm sitting there, and we, we had gone out to get some pizza in the afternoon uh, in Israel. So he doesn't know. I'm, I'm going to bench. I'm going to say the prayers after the after the food. He doesn't know how to say the prayers, right? I say, are you, you're not going to say it? Of course you're going to say it. So I say, we took it. I said, I'll say every word, and you'll say after me. Mm-hmm. So he did Baruch, and he said Baruch. He just listened to what I said and said it. And he reminded me about it this time, you know, how I kind of pressured him. No, what do you mean? You've got to say it. Right. You know, you know and, and yes, to him it was like he had no idea what he was saying, and it sounded like someone, someone you're just copying the guy in, in Chinese or in French, just enunciating what you hear. But he actually did it. And look at him now. You know, so of course it was his motivation. Mm-hmm. But um, the fact that he was motivated enabled him to really quickly, really rapidly become a great Torah scholar. It's yeah, but I, the, now, the reason why how he, how he finished a, a, a book of Talmud is also interesting. I had another student. Oh, he wasn't really my student. He was kind of the student of the institution <clears throat> who had uh, a year prior come to the yeshiva now he had three. He was three weeks after finish, after passing the bar. Passed the bar. Three weeks later, was on a three week trip to Israel. He started loving Torah study. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm all in. So he's like, oh, I'll defer my payments, whatever, on my student loans, and just you know, stay here for a couple of months. And he ended up. He's still there. Never came back. He's still there. When I was in Israel a couple of months, a couple a couple of months ago, I went to visit him, and I had his two boys on my lap. It was a lot of fun as well. Um, but he was there a year prior. And he was already, you know, a very intelligent guy. He's a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, okay, I'm going to America for Pesach. Why don't you guys study over the, over the break? You guys study with each other and finish the book of Talmud over Pesach. That's what I said to them. I'm like, whatever. 
And I went to I went to Canada and I'm regaling in Canada or New York, wherever we went for Pesach. And I come back and they're like, oh, we're finishing it. They actually did it. Oh. <laughs> they actually did it. You know, and it's just a testament to, to their commitment and their dedication. Was it easy? No, of course, they started off with nothing. But my point is, is that this shows us that it's possible. Is it easy? No. It's not easy for them. It's not easy. Even if you have motivation, it's going to be obstacles. But total greatness to be achieved by anyone. The Rambam tells us there's three crowns in Judaism. There's the crown of the king, there's a crown of the priest, the Kohen, and there's a crown of Torah. The crown of the kingdom was given to the tribe of Judah through the house of David, the Davidic line. You want to, if I want to be a king, I can't be a king. Oh, maybe unless I'm from the house of David, which I doubt. Poor leadership skills. All right? Uh, if I were for sure I wanted to be a Kohen Gadol, I want to be a high priest, there's no way. I'm not a Kohen. Right? That was given to the family of Levi, to, to the descendants of Aaron. However, the crown of Torah is available for everyone. Whoever wants it can come and claim it. But perhaps you'll say, well, the crown of the king or the crown of the priest, those are higher crowns, those are bigger crowns, those are nicer crowns, those are more important crowns. No, the crown of Torah is greater than them all. It's more precious than he who enters the Holy of Holies. Go ahead. Is teaching Torah the same as studying Torah? Huh? If you're what teaching, you you're doing both. Teaching is, is, is teaching is, is is also studying. Teaching is even a higher level. If you higher. teach, then it means you study plus you're able to study and able to and teach. The world to be able to teach, you have to know the Torah. Right, but, the, but you're engaging. You know, I, I, I always you're engaging in the study if you're teaching. What? I guess if you're teaching, you're engaging in the study of Torah. Oh, I guess anything that you can teach, you know well. I um. Um, I the, your point um, is that uh, Howard that um, you're absolutely right, and I think one of the best ways to study is to com- force yourself to teach. You know, and I uh, I would like to encourage all of you to kind of take some aspect of Torah and know it inside out and study it and get help from me or from my brother or from someone. Uh, I'm willing to help, of course, and. Invest in it to the degree that you're able to actually teach it. And then instead of teaching a class, because a lot of people get flustered with class environments, and what if they ask me questions I don't know the answer? I type it out, put it on a uh, teleprompter, and teach it to a camera, to a video. We'll put it on YouTube, and it'll be your contribution, your teaching of Torah, or at least your first Torah teaching you could do to the world. And it's not easy, but we can. There's a portion of Torah for each and every Jew. Your soul is laden with Torah. The question is, are you going to extract it and bring it out to the world, or are you going to let it stay there dormant? That's the only question. And even, even if we have very little Torah, we have a thimble size, right? A thimble uh, a volume of Torah, but we have something, and that Torah is very precious. That Torah is our spiritual vitality. You say like, uh, you know, uh, you see people that, uh, you know, those people that, you know, that they, uh, when they get old, they get like those, those uh, uh, vitamin and supplement and medicine yeah. trays that has like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, right? 
and like if they take the day off, right? If they don't take the blood thinners or their whatever, that they're done, right? Well, they're not done. No, not done. Some sick. some people they get sick or right? or some right. And you say, well, look at it, Jane. You you are an adult, right? <laughs> you weigh I don't know 180 pounds. And this tiny little pill is all that, this determines if you live or die? Well, some pills do. Yeah, some pills do. Thank you, we have a doctor here. Some pills do, right? And and I want to flip it on on its side. Your spiritual life. You have a tiny little amount of Torah. You know what that tiny little amount of Torah is? That's what's keeping you alive, spiritually. We value every drop of Torah that we can get. Every drop. And if you have a thimble size full of Torah, you can teach that. And you can cha- radically change who you are as an individual. Just a, a few more things here before we wrap up here. Maimonides tells us, back to Maimonides, he says, the importance of teaching our children Torah. Right? What happens if you are in a town and there's no Jewish school? If there's no Jewish school, you have to burn down the whole town. Oh, yeah. The Ram speaks in such superlative terms that you, it's absolutely the worst thing for a Jewish town is that it doesn't have uh, it doesn't teach Torah. You know why? Because you disassociate the Jew from Torah, you disassociate the Jew from Judaism. This is a direct link. A Jew without Torah will eventually be a Jew without Judaism. A Jew without Judaism is devastation. Because that is a Jew that is not fulfilling their mandated responsibilities. It's a Jew that does not have the deep sensibilities of the responsibilities of a Jew. And therefore, that is a very dangerous potion. As we know, as we've seen in the past, when you take a Jew out of Judaism, right, you have a ticking time bomb. It's every time it's ever happened, we've seen the disastrous consequences. The Almighty knows Jews have to be Jewish. Because that is the only thing that can bring tikkun olam. When a Jew says, I don't want Torah, right, or I'm opting out of Torah, or I'm just ignorant and I'm not studying Torah, they're severing the link between their, themselves and their Judaism, and they are causing tremendous havoc to themselves, to the Jewish community, and to the world. And the only way that could be readjusted often is via really, really disastrous and painful and tragic means. Uh, and therefore, if you have a, a, a town, a Jewish town, that there's no Torah study, you know, there's, no, there's, there's no Torah, you're not investing in your kids. Right? It's like having, uh, I don't know, a hospital without Nurse. doctors nurses. <laughs> or nurses or medicine or utensils, right? It's a disaster. Yes, someone might not be dying right now, but what happens if someone's about to die in a little bit? It's a disaster. And that's why Tosa, whoa, you don't have a Jewish school. Relax, you know. Why would you have to burn down the town? He's telling you that the town, the town cannot exist. It's so essential to have a Jewish school because a Jewish school teaching Judaism, teaching Torah, right? that's the only way we can survive. It's our lifeblood. I want to just end the introduction uh, with yeah, uh, with, uh, uh, with, a, with a statement which I think kind of should 
you know, if we had any doubts as to the supremacy of of, of the Torah, that should be uh, squelched immediately. Uh, we're told, as sages tell us, that the Almighty was able to forfeit and to allow to happen and to absorb murder, adultery, idolatry. We know that the three cardinal sins, the ones, the sins we have to give up our lives and not transgress, are murder, idolatry, and adultery. Those are the, those are the three biggies. Right? Guy comes to you and says, gun to the head, eat the non-torture food. Right? Eat the cheeseburger. Give it to me. Right? Put it on your bib. Consume it. That's, yeah, that's your mitzvah at that time. And guy goes, right, that's the way the Shabbos. Don't worry, fellow, right? Any, any mitzvah, right? To transgress. He comes to you and say, murder? say, bite the bullet. He comes to you and say, do adultery? Bite the bullet. Idolatry? Bite the bullet. These are the worst sins someone could do. And the Almighty says, these sins I can handle. I can bear it. I can for- forgive and forget and forfeit. What can I not forgive? No, that, that the Almighty says he can forgive. What can he not forgive? <coughs> not studying Torah. No. You know why? Well, well, not studying Torah. Why, why can Why would... You don't study Torah? Okay, you study, you'll study some other time, all right? Or, oh, at least you're not, you're not murdering, right? The reason why is because at the root of good Jewish behavior is going to be Torah study. The only way a Jew would go out off and commit murder is if a Jew is not involved in Torah. That's the only way. Mm-hmm. A Jew does idolatry. How can you do idolatry if you have Torah, right? Those two are opposites. Adultery, even the Maimonides tells us, adultery is, is a symptom, right? Uh, a sexual misconduct is a symptom of a heart devoid of Torah. Now, how that works, by the way, this, these are all big statements. We don't have to go through and kind of show how Torah... And the eights are, are absolute opposites. You got one, you don't have the other. You're going to have one and one or the other, or sixty percent of one and forty percent of the other. But they're opposites. You can't have both. If you if you are consumed with Torah, there's no way that your yates or the evil inclination can overcome you, right? And if your evil inclination is overcoming you, that's evidence that you don't have Torah. So am I, so, the, so the verse, what the sages are telling us, is like this: the Almighty is willing to for, for, forgive. And forfeit. Uh, he's willing to for- forgive him and forfeit symptoms, but not causes. The symptom of lack of Torah, idolatry, adultery, murder. Those are symptoms. They might be willing to forgive the symptom, but the mothership of doom, of abandoning Torah, that the Almighty is not willing to forgive. So that's an introduction, right? I want to, the next week we're going to go through 23 reasons. So I don't know, I oh, doubt we need to do it all. But, you know, each one of them, it's its own idea, you know. So we're trying to genuinely investigate the matter of what is Torah, why is it so important, how is it so, so central in the Jewish worldview. And I think if we find 23 or even if we only had 10 or, you know, 17 or five good reasons why it should be so essential, uh, it would be worth of our investigation. When we see the overwhelming Reasoning behind why Torah is so central, central, I think that would do a lot to kind of pique our interests uh, into examining this very central topic in Jewish life. Thanks a lot, guys. This is a pleasure as usual. Thank you for 
uh, for staying, and I look forward to seeing you guys next week, and we have to schedule time. Would you email me or be willing to email me a list of books?